Welcome to the History of California podcast. I'm your host, Jordan Maddox. This is the first episode of our 2021 season, and we are still in the midst of the Mexican-American War. For those who enjoy military history, you'll be excited that we're going to be talking about battles today. For those who don't, you'll be excited to know that this is one of the last few episodes on the Mexican-American War because in the California theater, it didn't last all that long. There weren't many people. There weren't many soldiers around. Therefore, there are not many battles to talk about. Before we get started, I wanted to say a special thank you to everyone who supported the podcast last year. I couldn't have done it without your help. And without further ado, let's get into today's episode. A new year of the History of California podcasts. We pick up where we left off right after the Siege of Los Angeles. Now, this battle, which, if you really look at it, might be less significant than it sounds, uh, but to the people who fought for their land and their liberties, even in what in military history might be considered a skirmish, to those who are there who fought and risked their lives to fight for their land, their homeland, it was much more. It's always more to people who are there. Sitting from the leather chair in my office in the 21st century, it seems small but it is always much more when you're in the moment, which is part of the reason why I love historical fiction. Neil Ferguson, one of the most famous historians writing for the general public today, doesn't get historical fiction. In an interview, he questioned why we needed it, given that history is so endlessly fascinating and full of surprises in and of itself. The problem is that with many of these events, we don't get the interior lives of the people experiencing them. We don't know what they're thinking, feeling. We can't feel their breath or their heart race. To be honest, I think we need a lot more historical fiction for events like these. There is a place for history, like what we do here and what we did on the previous episode talking about the Siege of Los Angeles, where we review what we know about what happened. But there's also a place, I believe, for reimagining what happened, particularly in events like this that seem small or insignificant in the grand historical record. And for those who would question this, I would say we do it all the time, particularly with founding fathers, famous explorers, presidents. It's no different here. But that's a whole other podcast. Today, we're going back to the historical record for what happened right after the siege of L.A., Jose Maria Flores, who we met last time, the commander in charge who managed to remove the American troops from the Pueblo, set about to retake different strategic locations uh, that had been taken by Americans. The first was Santa Barbara. As the Americans had moved down the coast to initially take Los Angeles, small groups of Americans had been left to occupy different outposts along the Pacific coast of California. John Theodore Talbot, had been left with a small group of Americans in the city or pueblo of Santa Barbara. The first thing that happened was the courier who had been sent by Gillespie to let the forces in Monterey know what had happened in Los Angeles stopped in Santa Barbara to refuel and and by refuel get food and water um, before continuing heading north. Uh, The rumors of the Mexican victory had gotten out to the townspeople and Talbot and his men were growing nervous Uh, that the people would discover what's going on and revolt as well. 
Flores sent a man, Manuel Gafarius, to take back Santa Barbara from the Americans. When Gafarius arrived, he gave Talbot two hours to surrender. Talbot did what any good soldier would do. Kidding, he didn't do that. He actually ran and hid in the hills of Mission Canyon, hoping to wait out the opposing forces until more American troops could arrive. They successfully hid for a few days, but quickly ran out of food and snuck into town at night to steal more. This worked for a few days until they were discovered. The Californios unsuccessfully attacked them a few times before Talbot made the decision to break for it and made for the Tulare area in the valley and eventually was able to get back to Monterey. Talbot would return with Fremont and hoist the flag in Santa Barbara. The next big sweep... Let's try this again. Pause. The next big sequence in the battles, though, was the Battle of Rancho Dominguez. After the loss in Los Angeles, the Americans arrived in force around what would today be L.A. Harbor to take back the city, led by the, name, by the man named William Mervyn, one of those people that has seen a lot in his lifetime. He was born in 1791 during the presidency of George Washington uh, and was born in the city of Philadelphia. He would serve in the War of 1812, uh, traveled the world by boat, including Africa and Europe and all over the place, fought in the Mexican-American War and the Civil War as well. He actually had some ships named for him that fought in World War II, including the European and Pacific theaters. Anyway, Mervyn's day was not that good. First, as they arrived, a cabin boy was killed in friendly fire on the beach. Second, they came fairly unprepared to fight. They had some muskets and pikes, but no horses. They were harassed continually by opposing troops on their way to Rancho San Dominguez, where they were fired upon during all of the night, preventing the Americans from getting any sleep. The battle that followed was short and unsuccessful for the Americans. The Californios dug up a cannon that was in the backyard of an old woman living in that city um, and used it to fire upon the Americans throughout the following day. Unprepared to fight, Mervyn was forced to retreat back to the coast the same day as the battle. In fact, the battle did not last more than an hour. Four of the individuals that were injured in the battle uh, ultimately died of their wounds and were buried on an island cleverly titled or named the Island of the Dead. They also buried their cabin boy there as well. Dead Man's Island, which was uh, dredged as part of a harbor project, has an interesting history in itself. The island was named for the fact that it was used for shallow graves that were littered across the top of the island. In fact, when they eventually removed the island, nearly two dozen skeletons were discovered. Here's what Richard Henry Dana said about it in his famous book, Two Years Before the Mast. It was a solemn and interesting spot to me, he wrote. There it stood, desolate and in the midst of desolation. And there were the remains of the one who died was buried, alone and friendless. It was the only thing in California which I could ever extract anything like poetry. End quote. Eventually, a rock jetty was connected to Dead Man's Island, but the congestion of the land area led to the need to eventually remove the island. The bodies were re 
extracted and relocated and the island was removed. It's a real thing to say, isn't it? An island removed. I know we've talked about this before, but I'm going to say it again because it wanders into my brain from time to time. And this is seemingly off topic, but it will make sense. To think, to think in California that there was a massive body of freshwater, a lake, that existed in the Central Valley so large that it concreted endless marshes where the city of Tulare and the county of Tulare got its name from Tule Reeds is haunting in so many ways. There's this great writer that we have here in the Central Valley, Mark Arax, who writes about water, land, and farming issues. In one of his books, there's this haunting picture of a man standing next to what looks like a giant measuring pole. And the pole is used to measure how far the earth has sunk due to the water being extracted for agriculture. I could do a whole podcast on just the history of the land in California and the changes that people have intentionally made to it. Now, before we wander down that rabbit trail, let's get back to the war. The next major battle of the conflict took place south of the battles in Los Angeles. It was called the Battle of San Pascal. This would be one of the last battles in the Californian theater. The war in California was naturally shorter. There were less people to defend this terrain. Uh, and the Mexican government was much more concerned with the eastern theater, the seat of most of the population, where the major armies and the area of acute tension were that precipitated the war. The San Pascal Valley, to give you some geographical context, had major strategic importance for the Americans and the Californios. The valley, in fact, was a pathway to San Diego, controlling access to the important region. The American force that ultimately initiated the battle in this region was called the Army of the West, and was led by a man named Stephen W. Kearney. Kearney was born in Newark, New Jersey. He attended public schools there, as well as Columbia University in New York City. After graduating, he enlisted in the military and became a lifelong soldier. He had lots of experience venturing west, often accompanying settlers that were exploring and engaging in fur and trapping industries. He was even invited as a guest on the famed Lewis and Clark expedition. In addition, Kearney also went on scouting and exploration and expeditions all along the Continental Divide and into the West and New Mexico. At the start of the Mexican-American War, Kearney was promoted to Brigadier General and oversaw 2,500 men. Starting from Missouri, Kearney traveled to New Mexico to establish a new military government. The makeshift constitution that he created for this new government came to be known as the Kearney Code. Following the takeover of the new territory, Kearney continued on to California. Along the way, Kearney ran into a pretty famous dude, who I've mentioned in a previous podcast I have a connection with, and that is Kit Carson, the famous fighter who would later massacre large populations of Native Americans. Carson informed Kearney that California was under American control. This was mid to late September in the year of 1846, so technically he was correct, albeit not for long. Kearney also bumped into our friend Galepsi, uh, who had just lost the Battle of L.A. in the desert, who gave Kearney the update of what had transpired. 
Kearney continued marching towards California until he ran into Pio Pico's brother Andres and his army of Californios. The day was a wet one, and Kearney's troops were more prepared for a scouting journey than for a battle. They had mules, while Pico's forces had horses trained for battle. The wet weather made it difficult to load and reload weapons. Remember, we are still talking about gunpowder and metal balls. Again, American forces invading a land when they were not prepared. That is the theme here, if you're gathering it, uh, from the battles of California. The American forces were not successful in terms of actual fighting, but their overwhelming forces would ultimately give them the advantage. The actual battle began when the Californios fired volleys of gunshots in the midst of Kearney's troops. The shots landed true, taking down many, including hitting Kit Carson's horse from underneath him and knocking him down. Kearney's troops, though, unintimidated, pursued their attackers, but were met with lances. 31 American troops died, and Kearney himself was stabbed in the butt. Unconfirmed reports state that, at the most, Pico lost a few men in this battle, while Kearney and his troops lost, again, 31. Rebuffed, Kearney and his troops made their way to what would later be called Mule Hill, a name which will make sense in a moment, uh, which is actually a hiking trail today. Pico's troops surrounded that hill, knowing that Kearney's troops were weighed down by the wounded and lacked proper mounts, as they ran out of food, began eating the only things that weren't humans. At that time, Kearney decided he needed to get help. He ordered Carson, Edward Beale, and a native guide traveling with them to sneak out of the hill at night and get help from Stockton. When they returned with support, Pico and his forces had already dispersed. Both sides had claimed they had won the battle, but the victor seems clear to me and probably should be clear to you all as well. In our next episode, we will talk about the end of hostilities in California. And that doesn't necessarily mean the end of the war. The war would continue to rage in the Eastern Theater. Remember, as we keep coming back to again and again in this podcast, California is the frontier. California is not a place that Mexico had really settled not a place that they felt compelled to focus their attention. This is a situation of cutting losses and acknowledging things are too spread out. Californios knew that, Americans knew that, and the Mexican government knew that. Until next time. Mm-hmm.